Hello, welcome to The Briefing. This is the show that gets you up to speed every morning with the news you need to know. I'm Tom Tilley. It's the 21st of April. It's a Tuesday and I'm joined by Annika Smithhurst in Canberra. Annika, we're going deep later on the show into your story. Yeah, it's a little bit confronting becoming the story. Hopefully not going as deep as the AFP who came to my house and, of course, spent seven hours rooting around there. Um, But I look forward to sharing a little bit of that a little bit later on. Yeah, it became a massive political story about press freedom, but it's been such a massive personal story for you. So we're going to get into that in our briefing topic in the second half of the show. First, let's get to some headlines. Uh, the big one is Virgin Australia announcing that they've gone into voluntary administration. It's, it's huge and it's also very concerning news. Um, it means the chances uh, will end up with one major airline are much higher. Yeah, look, the federal government refused to bail them out. They knocked back a request for cash recently, meaning that the airline was really left with little choice but to go into voluntary administration this morning. Yeah, they owe over $5 billion and they've already stood down 80% of their staff. It's a big loss, um, a lot of jobs, but the big question is how will this affect airfares and frequent flyer points? (laughs) With one aviation expert has suggested that if we just have one airline in Australia, prices could go up by 10 to 20% when we're through this. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not more than that, actually. Um, Let's see how the government are responding to this, because they're obviously under a lot of pressure um, to keep the second airline in the sky. Um, Here's Matthias Cormann, the finance minister, explaining why they're not bailing them out. The first responsibility always to bail out a business is uh, for its owners, its shareholders. And Virgin has very substantial owners, like Singapore Airlines, Etihad Airlines, both owning 20% of their shares, 40% of shares uh, with uh, substantial uh, Chinese investors. Yeah, he raises a really interesting point there that I think a lot of Australians would agree with, Annika, that you've got these massive international airlines that own Virgin Australia. So why should the Australian taxpayer be stumping up the cash? Absolutely. And it's been the question the whole way for the government. They've said right from the start, we can't bail out everybody and we can't save every job. So there has to be a cutoff point at some place. The problem is there's a lot of jobs out there, a lot of people relying on this and a lot of people also wanting to fly around Australia when this resumes. The last thing the government want is for Australia to drop down to a single airline. One domestic airline is no good for anybody. So what do you think they're going to do? Are they going to keep playing hardball? In some ways, voluntary administration gives them more options. Now they can restructure, sell off assets, look for a foreign buyer, a local buyer who might be able to come in and actually save some of the jobs there. So in many ways, the government wanted this process to start because once it goes into voluntary administration, administrators are brought in to run the airline and there's a chance that it can actually be saved. All right. Well, that's good news for anyone who was hoping to spend their frequent flyer points on a pair of noise-cancelling headphones like I was. The other big story this morning is a a very concerning one out of South Korea where 179 people who've recovered from the coronavirus have then tested positive again. Tom, this is my biggest fear. The country's officials say patients in their 20s were worst hit, making up more than a fifth of those cases. Yeah, they're trying to figure out why this happened and whether the virus was still in their systems or whether they actually caught it again. Look, this really does raise questions about what we do with people who have survived this virus. There had been calls for them to perhaps get a licence or a passport system so they can go back out in the community, go to the footy or go to the pub. But the World Health Organisation is warning that the worst is yet to come, especially if we ease restrictions too early. Ending the epidemic will require a sustained effort on the part of individuals communities and governments to continue suppressing and controlling this deadly virus. 
That was Tedros Adnom Ghebreyesus. And a really concerning message there. And these people getting it for a second time is so concerning, Annika, because until we have a vaccine, all the hope was placed on people getting it and then becoming immune to it so we could slowly start getting back to normal. And if that's not possible and we don't have a vaccine... We're going to be in limbo for ages. Absolutely. People might have heard the talk of herd immunity, which is not Australia's policy. But what it really means is that we wait for this virus to move its way slowly through enough people, usually about 60% of the population, so that the reinfection rate really does drop. And now I don't know what we're going to do if people are still getting it. I'm obviously not an immunologist, but... I guess if they get it a second time and it's not as strong, then potentially like there's some hope there. Look, I'm just trying to look for some kind of positivity because <laughs> that is a really and I think it one. raises questions. There was a precedent set recently in South Australia where somebody who had already had the virus said, why should I have to sit inside for two weeks if I've crossed state borders? I've already had it. I should be allowed out of the house. And the government agreed. So we might have to even rethink those policies about what we do to people who have already had it that thought they could perhaps avoid some of the social restrictions the rest of us are facing. And to a bit of good news now, at the petrol bowser, um, petrol prices are going down, down, down. They're under a dollar. It's like the 1990s all over again. If only we had somewhere we could go. (laughs) Yes, the price of crude oil in America is actually gone into the negative for the first time, which means suppliers are paying buyers $38 a barrel to take it off their hands. Yeah, so that's making it really cheap all around the world, including here in Australia. But Comsec senior economist Ryan Felsman says it may not last long, so you better get in quick. Probably can't rely on that continuing, though. At one stage, we're expecting, of course, to see the oil price stabilise. We have seen OPEC and the other producers look to cut production, but demand is very, very weak at the moment with social distancing measures in place and people not driving around as much. Maybe have to get out and buy a 44-gallon drum and, you know, stock up while it's cheap. Is that one of the reasons you're allowed to leave your house? I, I thought <laughs> driving around aimlessly was going to get you in trouble. So I don't want to advise anybody uh, against doing that, but, you know, you don't want to be stopped by the police. Yeah, officer, I'm just, just going out to buy a, a big metal drum to fill up petrol at my Investing home. Investing in the future. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to The Briefing with me, Tom Tilley, and this is the part of the show where we go in-depth on one big story. And this story is actually about one of my co-hosts on The Briefing, Annika Smethurst. She's been at the centre of a massive story that made news all around the world. Last June, her Canberra apartment was raided for seven hours by the Australian Federal Police over a story she wrote the year before. Now, the story was about discussions between the Department of Defence and Home Affairs proposing to give an Australian intelligence agency the powers to spy on Australian citizens. Seven police officers raided Ms Smethurst's home in June after she published a story containing national security leaks. The documents obtained by News Corp were stamped with a top-secret Australianise-only classification, detailing a bid by Home Affairs to grant the Electronic Spy Agency, the Australian Signals Directorate, the power to spy inside Australia's borders. So it was a huge story at the time, as you can hear. And then last week, it hit the news again because the High Court ruled unanimously that the raid was illegal. All seven High Court justices throwing out the warrant the AFP used to search her Canberra apartment and seize data from her phone in June 2019. So that was mostly good news for Annika, but the investigation is still going. She's still living under a massive cloud. So for today's briefing topic, we're going to find out what the personal cost of this saga has been for her. 
Annika, thanks for joining us again. What a wild ride. Yeah, two years of my life now, actually. Uh, this month, it was two years ago that I first wrote the story, which seems to have got me in a, a lot of trouble. Yeah. So uh, while a lot of other people move on and we have pandemics and everything else, this is something that I still live with every day. Annika, before we move too far into this story and this conversation, can you take us back to the original article two years ago? What was it about? It's about one of our spy agencies. Uh, We've got a number of them in Australia. Uh, uh, The one that I wrote about was the Australian Signals Directorate. Now, they're cyber spies. They're the guys that sort of hack and and look at covert sort of issues that are happening on the dark web. Traditionally, the ASD has only ever looked at foreign threats. It's their motto to protect our secrets and reveal other people's secrets. There is a proposal, and it has been confirmed recently by the government, to expand the power of the ASD to spy on Australians. Now, they don't know on the online world who's Australian and who's not, so for the purpose of that they say anybody who that's in Australia. This is a huge shift, I guess, in the makeup that a, a, a spy agency that's meant to be protecting us from foreigners was going to turn their powers on Australians. So what was it like to be at the centre of that story as it blew up last year? Look, it was strange for me because I'd written it a year before and um, they announced early that they would look into the source of the leak, but this happens quite a bit in Canberra and I didn't think much of it. And more than a year later, I was ready to go to work one morning, June 2019, and seven police showed up at my door um, and my life changed from that moment. Massive attention, obviously here in Australia, but around the world, Amal Clooney, the lawyer and wife of George Clooney, here's what she said. What happens in a country like Australia or the UK or the US will be looked at um, by every other leader in the world and potentially used as an excuse to clamp down even further on journalists. Just incredible. So what was it like to hear people like that weighing in? Look, as you said, the the sort of juxtaposition between the mundane and the extraordinary, I would say that's been the theme of my life for the last (laughs) year. Um, This was reported in countries that I hadn't even heard of. I went. I was part of a journalism program last year with about 30 other journos from around the world and we all went to the US to learn about what's going on over there. And before I'd even got there, people from Malta and Serbia and African countries had heard of my story and it was wow. sort of incredible because in some parts my life has gone on very normally. I've continued to work, I go to the press gallery, I walk the dog, I make dinner um, and then in this sort of strange world, I'm fronting the high court like Daryl Kerrigan in the castle <laughs> and um, I'm being spoken about at sort of international events by human rights lawyers and um, my name is being talked about on CNN. I didn't ask for that and I realised that infamy is actually a really terrible thing and I think it's given me, I guess, more sympathy for people I interview in the future about what it's like to be thrust into the spotlight. Um, journos never want to be the story and I genuinely never wanted to be the story, but I guess I found after a certain amount of time I accepted that this was happening to me and that I guess I had to speak up because this had happened and if I didn't speak up then perhaps this might happen again. Yeah, I imagine it was so surreal to begin with and you've got a great sense of humour and a lot of people focused on the fact they rated your undie drawer and stuff like that and in some ways you've been able to laugh about it which has been amazing. But was there a point where it really turned for you where it went from surreal, bizarre, to actually really hard, really hurtful, really taking a toll on you? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the undie drawer, look, I understand why it was picked up on because I'm a young woman who was living alone and that seems like such an intimate sort of invasion. But, look, I'm a millennial and them going through my phone was the worst thing and not even because they were after sort of text to sources or pollies or whatever they were looking for. It was more the... You know, the things, you, the little notes you make in the phone or the screenshots or your text to your friends. And while they might not have been after my sort of little bitchy message to my mate <laughs> or something like this or a screenshot of a dress I wanted to buy, it's your intimate world and it, it's personal and, well, it was until that day and it was just an incredible intrusion. And, look, I managed to keep it together during the day despite the fact, you know, people were ringing me and my parents were upset and it was all very awful. But there was a moment when the police left and the lawyers left and I just burst into tears and had many days and still continue to where it all gets too much and I can't laugh about it anymore, although I do laugh about it a lot because I don't know what else to do. Look, there are moments when I think about jail and who would visit me and where this jail might be and maybe I'd be allowed to power lift. I don't know. That seems huh. to be what something that people do in jail or would I have access to books? You know, there is a genuine part of me that I guess prepares for the worst case scenario, just in case that does happen about how am I going to get through this? Because if my mind's already thought about it, perhaps it won't be as bad when I hear those words. Oh, that's so horrible to think of you contemplating being in jail and, you know, this so quickly because of what happened the next day at the ABC turned into a much bigger story about press freedom and and so it should. But that's a heartbreaking image of you being left alone in your own apartment after such a crazy experience as seven AFP people going through your house for seven hours and you sitting there alone just bursting into tears. Yeah, and the worst bit was, Tom, I couldn't turn on the news or the radio or my phone, you know, places you usually escape from after a day at work because it was me. It was all me everywhere and all I was hearing about was Anarchist Methodist could go to jail. Um, and you find it hard to escape from that and to find a way out. So, look, I did a lot of um, back-to-basic things. You know, the, the radio and TV went off a lot more. There was a lot of walking the dog. There was a lot of sort of – I had to reshape a lot of um, my normal day-to-day life. Let's bring in another point of view on this, um, a well-known legal mind to talk about last week's court victory for you, but also the broader issue of press freedom – Peter Bartlett is a senior lawyer. He's a partner at a big law firm called Minter Ellison. Peter, what was your reaction to the High Court's decision last week? The, uh, I, I think it was um, a great win for Annika, but the reality is that uh, it wasn't a win on the merits. It was a win on drafting grounds. The High Court found that the um, search warrant was ambiguous and poorly drafted. And I think it's a tragedy uh, that they didn't go on to consider whether the um, section um, in the Crimes Act infringed the implied freedom in the Constitution, Uh, looking at political communication. um, I think that that was it was a huge opportunity for the High Court to get into that issue. Um, But unfortunately, they've shown over recent years in lots of defamation appeals and other cases that they've been very reluctant to, again, look and extend the infringed uh, implied freedom in our constitution. And I'm not sure, I'd love another legal perspective on this, but as the person sort of um, facing the High Court, I found it an interesting decision that I won on a technicality that the raid on my property was illegal, but 
the material seized still remains with the police and could potentially be used. What did you make of that decision? Well, I found it rather extraordinary that the High Court can decide that the search warrant was illegal, that the Australian Federal Police seized material uh, when they had no legal right to do so, and yet the High Court declined to hand the material back to you. And as you know, four of the seven judges had doubts as to whether they had the power to order um, that the material be handed back to you. Um, And they also said that uh, you were still under investigation. The raids were deemed to be illegal, so it's an extraordinary position. Uh, But going, I suppose, the next step, uh, the Attorney General, Christian Porter, has said that he's disinclined to authorise charges. I would take the view that it's now very unlikely that there would be charges because there would have to be a significant possibility that the court in any prosecution would tell the AFP that they can't use that material because that material was uh, gained illegally. And also the government knows uh, and the attorney knows that the, the whole media in Australia is united against this raid Um, and against a prosecution. Peter, it's been great to hear your analysis and hear you barracking for Annika, given what she's gone through and also the broader issues at stake here. Thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Thanks, Tom. All right, that was uh, Peter Bartlett. He's a lawyer at Minter Ellison, a big law firm, weighing in on Annika Smethurst's story. What's your reaction to what he had to say just there, Annika? I hope he's right. Um, I hope that this does go away, but it doesn't actually do much for press freedom. It doesn't do much beyond that. And that's my concern. You know, I would definitely welcome the AFP and uh, the Attorney General saying that this is not something they wish to pursue. Uh, But I don't know how that helps the next journalist that comes along that has a story that they want to write. And I think that's what this bigger issue is. And I try and make it less about me and less about, you know, the ABC raid and more about what does this mean for actual voters and people. And I think reform in this area would just mean better quality journalism for people who make choices about governments. Has this been worth it for you? Would you do the same again? Will this stop me, deter me from reporting in general? No. If I still got a good yarn, would I want to report it? Yes. Uh, It has affected my ability to do my job in the last year though. It's really hard. Um, There is thoughts that, you know, perhaps my phone's being bugged or my Texts will be read again. So I think people are less um, keen to talk. Uh, at my lowest point, I was searching courses in horticulture to go <laughs> and do something else. Um, look, would I do the same thing in the same order at the same time? Who knows? But it's not going to deter me from writing stories in the future. And I, I don't think it will deter many journos, actually. We're a strong bunch. Well, it's been amazing to hear you open up about it. And thanks so much for sharing that. And thanks for being a co-host on this new exciting podcast that we're just beginning. No worries, Tom. I can't wait to be with you more mornings. All right, that's it for today. Uh, Thank you so much for listening um, on the second day of this podcast. Really exciting. It's surging through the iTunes charts. So um, please keep reviewing the podcast and telling your friends about it. Um, Tomorrow's looking pretty interesting, Annika. Yeah, we're going to be learning a little bit more about wet markets. What Mm. are they? And what should we do with them post-coronavirus? Yeah, should they be shut down? Um, A lot of people in the Western world are really angry to see them reopening again. So we're going to find out 
what they actually are, how they work and what the risks really are. So stay listening to The Briefing. That's tomorrow's program. You can get it on the Podcast One app or search The Briefing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and thank you, Annika Smithhurst. See you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.